Well, good morning again. As you can see, we have a different fireplace behind us. And that's because between last week and this week, uh, we had that really infamous order of to uh, huddle at home. So that's what we've been trying to do, and I'm sure you have as well. But um, we're able to come to you at least through video. So we're going to go ahead and begin uh, the lesson this morning, and let's pray briefly before we begin. Father, we thank you. You're good. You're wonderful. You're holy. You're magnificent. And God, you're sovereign in all that you do and all that, all that we see from you. You are consistent, and you give us incredible words of encouragement through your scriptures. And Father, be with us today as we continue on in our study in the uh, Gospel of Luke. And uh, bring your word to us in Jesus' name. Amen. So last week we took a little bit of a break from our study in Luke and studied the encouragement the Bible brings uh, us in all circumstances of life. And this week, we are returning to Luke as we make our way to the cross with Christ. Uh, I think we've reached somewhat of a milestone in our study. Joe Shapko has kept track of the number of Sundays we have actually taught from the book of Luke, and I believe this is our 100th uh, message on Luke. So at first, I thought this was going to be a brief study, and of course, the more you study these things, the more things come up, so it's been fun. I hope it's been fun for you as well. I don't think I will ever preach another 100 Sunday sermon, but as sure as I say that, you know how that goes. So it's been an enlightening study for me. I hope it has been for you. Let's get started. A little bit of a review, because we haven't been in the book for a couple of weeks. Jesus had already stood before Annas and Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin and Pilate. Pilate then sent him to King Herod. When Jesus was before King Herod, he remained silent, and King Herod sent Jesus back to Pilate. Now, all of that sounds fairly brief and uncomplicated, but it really wasn't. But we've already covered that. A little more of a review here. During Pilate's second opportunity to interrogate Christ, we noticed a few things. Number one, Pilate ignored invalid accusations. Matthew 27, 18, for he knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered Jesus up to him. Second thing we learned was he ignored a valid warning. Matthew 27, 19, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him, have nothing to do with that righteous man, for I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. Finally, he invalidated the Roman law. Luke 23, 4. Then Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. And that led us to a very famous event where they began to yell for Barabbas to be freed. Pilate asks them what a good attorney would call a leading question. John 18, 39, this is what he says, So do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? It's my opinion that he was trying to find a way to get out of this situation, but he did cave and finally do what he was always going to do, I guess. But their response was this, when he asked if he should release to them the king of the Jews. In Matthew 27, 20, Now the chief priests and the soldiers, I'm sorry, the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. The governor again said to them, Which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. 
Pilate said to them, Then what shall I do with Jesus, who is called Christ? And they all said, Let him be crucified. And he said, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Let him be crucified. And then we read what I consider to be one of the most tragic scriptures in all the Bible. Matthew 27, verses 24 and 25. So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And here's the tragedy. And all the people answered, His blood be on us and on our children. It's amazing what we can find ourselves saying in the midst of some emotional response. I'm not sure they knew what they were saying, but even if they didn't, they said it and God heard it. And by the way, to some degree, all of that came true. Mark 15, 15. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, out of fear really, released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, or had him brutally beaten, he delivered him to be crucified. So we asked the question, this is a familiar question here at the Gathering Community Church, who was behind the plan of Barabbas being released instead of Jesus? Now the reason I say that is a familiar question for the Gathering Community Church is we're always aware that God is sovereign and there's nothing that happens that is not within his will and that he is, in, he is not in control of. So it was God who foiled Satan's plan to divert Jesus from the cross. It was God who ultimately chose Barabbas to be released instead of Jesus. God's plan was always that Christ would endure the cross. So that we may once again establish some context for our study this morning, I would like for us to read together Luke chapter 23, beginning with verse 1. Then the whole company of them arose and brought him before Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar, and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. And Pilate asked them, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. Then Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. But they were urgent, saying, He stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea, from Galilee even to this place. When Pilate heard this, he asked whether the man was a Galilean. And when he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him over to Herod, who was himself in Jerusalem at that time. And when Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad, for he had long desired to see him because he had heard about him. And he was hoping to see some sign done by him. So he questioned him at some length, but he made no answer. The chief priests and the scribes stood by, vehemently accusing him. And Herod with his soldiers treated him with contempt and mocked him. Then arraying him in splendid clothing, he sent him back to Pilate. And Herod and Pilate became friends with each other that very day. For before this, 
they had chosen to be at enmity with each other. Pilate then called together the chief priests and the rulers and the people and said to them, You brought me this man as one who is misleading the people. And after examining him before you, behold, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. Neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserving death has been done by him. I will therefore punish and release him. Verse 18, but they call, they all cried out together, away with this man and release to us Barabbas, a man who had been thrown into prison for an insurrection started in the city and for murder. Pilate addressed them once more, desiring to release Jesus. But they kept shouting, crucify him, crucify him. A third time he said to them, why? What evil has he done? I have found in him no guilt deserving death. I will therefore punish and release him. But they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified. And their voices prevailed. So Pilate decided that their demand should be granted. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, for whom they had asked, but he delivered Jesus over to their will. So now we get on uh, to more of the story by reading Matthew 27, 27. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters, and they gathered the whole battalion before him. Now, a battalion was the same as a cohort, and we looked up the meaning of a cohort a few Sundays ago, and there are 600 soldiers in a cohort. So as far as a battalion is concerned, of course, there are 600 soldiers in a battalion as well. So someone ordered 600 soldiers to be present at the scourging of Jesus. It may have even been the same cohort or battalion that led him from the garden just a few hours previously. This is interesting to me because Matthew notes this as if it were no small thing. There was obviously some type of a command that the entire cohort was to assemble in the governor's headquarters to witness this uh, cruel spectacle. Matthew 27, 28 through 31 says this, And they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand. And kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail the king of the Jews, and they spit on him, and took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put his own clothes on him and led him away to crucify him. Now Mark adds this as well in Mark fifteen nineteen, And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. I think there's really great irony in this. All they did to humiliate and torture him, all of that effort served as a shadow of the genuine and glorious articles that he would later be awarded in the presence of his father. So let's just take some time with this. They mocked him. They crowned him with thorns. 
They struck him with a reed or a cane. Herod placed a white robe upon him that was stained with his blood and sent him back to Pilate. Pilate placed a scarlet or a purple robe on him on his way to the cross. And then people bowed down and mocked him. So let's look at this carefully. These were a shadow of the things, the crown, the robes, the reed or the scepter that would be received in his glory. Let's look at the crown of thorns. In Revelation 19, 11 and 12, we read this. Then I saw heaven opened and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called faithful and true and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire and here it is and on his head are many diadems, meaning crowns. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He received a crown of thorns on earth, and he would receive many crowns in heaven. The reed that was in his right hand. This is compared to the scepter of righteousness of Christ as seen in Esther 4, I'm sorry, uh, chapter 8, verse 4. Then the king held out the golden scepter toward Esther. So Esther arose and stood before the king. Hebrews 1.8 But of the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. This is a prophetic scene of what will take place as the non-believers are separated from the believers by the way of the Son of God's scepter. As he pointed the scepter toward Esther, it gave her the authority or the permission to stand and follow. And that's the same thing we will receive as believers in heaven. Let's look at the robe stained with blood. Revelation 19.13 He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. This is Jesus they're speaking of. Even in heaven... He is in a white robe stained with blood. Herod put a white robe on him and his own blood stained that robe. The royal robe of scarlet or purple compared to Revelation 1.13. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. They saw this image. John saw that image. And then let's compare the bowing down uh, and mocking him to Matthew 2.11. After coming into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell to the ground and worshipped him. So even before he walked through this horrible thing on his way to the cross, certain people recognized him as royalty. The lowly shepherds immediately understood that the one who was, in, who was superior in that room and the one who was not superior in that room. How well did they understand it? Well, the scriptures tell us that there was no discussion or even prayer amongst those, uh, those shepherds. When they walked into the room, we will read this, and they fell to the ground and worshipped him. Not only did they fall to their knees, they fell to their knees and worshipped him. A newborn baby 
in a stable or a house. They understood. It was evident to them. Then we read the following concerning Christ's status in all of creation, not just on earth. Philippians 2, 9 and 10, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. Well, here's the question. Why would he do this? And here's the answer. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. And where will every knee bow? What's the surroundings? It tells us this happens in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and in hell because God is sovereign over all of those places and we will praise his son. I want to make sure we do not miss this. The very people who were in Pilate's court and in authority and mocked Jesus by bowing down, think about this, will bow down again to him. The soldiers who were there, the members of the Sanhedrin, and Pilate himself. However, this time, it will not be by their choice, and it will not be to mock him. They will be knocked to the ground, their knees will fail them, they will not be able to stand, and they will know him, and he will know them. They will remember when they did this before his crucifixion, and so will Jesus. And they will remember everything that happened and the role they played, whether they be in heaven, on earth, or in hell. They will bow, and they will remember. But there is more. Verse 11, And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. For what purpose will every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord? We have the answer to the glory of God the Father. All of this is done first and foremost for God's glory. What does this have to do with Jesus in the presence of Pilate in our study today? Well, once again, we see that our God is a God of economy. Nothing is wasted. All that Jesus endured during these trials on earth as a result of our sin will be repeated and transformed into the authentic revelation of the glory of Jesus Christ at his return. Remember that old idiom, the devil is in the details. Well, perhaps he is, but God dictates the details to humiliate Satan's plans. Let's read on. Luke 22, 26. And as they led him away, they seized one Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, and laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. So immediately, we see that the symbolism continues here. Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, found himself carrying the cross of God. This is yet another dramatic picture of that which every believer is compelled to do. We are not compelled to carry God's cross. Luke 9.23 says this, And he said to all, 
If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. And we remember in Luke 23, 26, the final four words, he was to carry it behind Jesus. So an interesting question might be, what do we know of Simon of Cyrene? And according to the scriptures, we know very little about Simon. However, we do know some things about his family. Cyrene, the city was also known as Kerr and was located in modern-day Libya, North Africa. And it was a Jewish dwelling place. Simon had two sons, Alexander and Rufus. They are mentioned in the scriptures. And it is here that I must stop and give credit where credit is due. I was listening uh, to John MacArthur speak on this topic, and he did such a brilliant job in researching and connecting the dots of history in such a way that I just have to share with you what he said by reading the following. Some, most of this is from John MacArthur, Mark 15, 21, and they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus to carry the cross. So by scripture alone, we understand that Simon had at least two sons and he, they were with him as he came to the celebration of the Passover. And their names were Alexander and Rufus. So the question must be asked, why did Mark, because that came from Mark 15, 21. The question must be asked, why did Mark identify Simon as the father of Alexander and Rufus? Well, a little bit of history here. Mark and Romans both were written about the same time. They were written about 25 to 30 years after the crucifixion of Christ. The apostle Paul also makes mention of Rufus, who was involved in his ministry, Romans 16, 13. He tells the people, greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord. Now what that means is he's a very, very special man. He has a call on his life. He is to be esteemed. Meet Rufus, chosen in the Lord. Now, according to John MacArthur, we can safely assume that what happens here is that Simon, who witnesses the suffering, death, and the compassion that Jesus expresses on the cross to his murderers, becomes a believer. We will not get into too much of that story about the, the journey from Pilate's court to the cross this morning, but we will later. The family returns then after the crucifixion, to Cyrene, and as a result of his conversion, his family receives Christ. Think about this for a moment. King Herod, Pilate, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, and the chief priests had repeated and consistent personal encounters with Christ, and still they rejected him. And yet, the entire family of Simon of Cyrene believed and were saved as a result of their father's one encounter with Jesus 
of Nazareth. And if that had been all that happened, that would have been enough. Can you see that? A man chosen out of the crowd, he's told to help or to carry the cross of Jesus Christ. And through that exchange and through that time with Jesus, and I'm sure Simon had never seen Jesus. We don't have any record of Jesus going to North Africa and ministering. He came to the correct decision that Jesus Christ was indeed the Messiah. And that would have been glorious enough, but God wasn't through with this yet. We read in Acts 11, 20 and 21, but there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists, meaning the Greeks, also preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. Some of the men who were ministering were from Cyrene. Now remember, 25 to 30 years after the crucifixion. What happens next? Acts 11.22 says this, The report of this, what is this that they are talking about? They're talking about these men going into Antioch and ministering, and they are seeing amazing results. Because the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. As a result of that, the report got back to Jerusalem to the apostles. And this is what we read in 11.22. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem. And so what they did is they sent Barnabas to Antioch. So the apostles of Jesus sent Barnabas to check things out, and he gave a report back. And this is his report. Acts 11.23 says this, When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, meaning Barnabas, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. So after that, we look at verse 20, uh, 25. So Barnabas went to Tarsus, to Tarsus, I'm sorry, to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. So this is what we have so far. A Cyrene, a Jewish Cyrene, came to the Passover festival, feast, and as Christ is walking from the court of Pilate, having been beaten horribly, a soldier looks at him and says, you carry his Simon carries the cross all the way to the skull, where the cross is erected. And then what we understand is that Simon and his family went back to Libya and began to share the gospel. After 25 years or so, the church is maturing and they send missionaries to Antioch. And amongst those missionaries are the two sons of Simon and their mother. 
Verse 25 in Acts, so Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. So Barnabas is sent to Antioch to investigate. He investigates, he gives a wonderful report, and then Barnabas leaves to go to Tarsus because there is a Jewish man who was once a Pharisee who has been affected and changed by Jesus. And so Barnabas goes to Tarsus from Antioch to get Paul. Can you see what God is building here? He is building the, the uh, evangelistic team to minister to the Gentiles. God sends the missionaries from Cyrene to Antioch. The apostles hear of great things and send their representative to assess the results. Barnabas is excited and goes to see Paul and brings him back to Antioch to be, uh, again uh, to minister in that church. And we move on, Acts 13, 1. Now there was in that church at Antioch prophets and teachers, and they named them Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, who had gotten saved, and Saul. So we see what's happening here. God is bringing together Simon, and his family with the team that will begin to minister to the Gentiles. It was at this appointed time, at this appointed place, the family of Simon of Cyrene met with the Apostle Paul and formed a great friendship. Can you imagine the questions Paul would have had for Simon's sons? Paul was... His, his, his heart had been crushed for Jesus. Maybe some of those questions would have been, can you tell me what your father experienced while carrying the cross of our Savior? What did he say to him? My suspicion is that these theoretical questions would have been asked through Paul's tears. So Paul, Rufus, and his mother are mentioned by name in Romans. Romans 16, 13. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, also his mother, who has been a mother to me as well. I want you to let that sink in. Who has been a mother to me as well. This is the Apostle Paul thanking God, in his own way, through writing in the book of Acts, that Simon's wife, Rufus's mother, has adopted him. So may I ask you a question, family? Has there ever been a time in your life when God sent to you a wonderful caregiver, exactly what you needed at the time, maybe a substitute mother, when you're away at college, or just in a difficult time. You know, the ladies are studying uh, something called A Woman After God's Own Heart. And it, I guess I say it amazes me. It really doesn't amaze me anymore that there's a perfect example here of what it means to be fulfilling the roles God has given us and how he can bring blessings through those. We must not miss the significance of this. God knew that Paul 
what we would call super apostle. The super apostle Paul, he gave him what he needed at the time, and that was a substitute mother. This is Paul, courageous, sometimes brazen. Paul, the future martyr. Paul, the author of over half of the New Testament. He needed a mom. He needed a substitute mother. Are you getting this? Ladies, I hope you find this to be an encouragement. As you fulfill your biblical role in your family, you are indeed a missionary to the world. Whether you are a mentor to your own children, or a niece, or a nephew, or the friend of your children's friends, you are a missionary to the world. Acts 11, 25 through 26, So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year, they met with the church and taught a great many people. A whole year. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called what? Christians. We can deduce from this that Paul was mothered by Rufus's mother for at least a year. How important was this nameless lady that God gave her charge of Paul, who he sent basically to you and me for a year. So I'd like to quote in summary here John MacArthur at this point because he says it so well. Simon just walked in from the country and out of nowhere, plucked out of the crowd by some witless, cruel Roman soldiers, is a man commandeered to carry a cross who becomes the instrument by which the Lord establishes a church in Cyrene, from which the gospel goes to Antioch, and from Antioch, Paul is sent to proclaim the gospel to the world. Purposes of God, providences of God, unfolding at a moment when Jesus looks like a total victim. And that is the truth, is it not? The world looks at the crucifixion, and the best they can come up with at times, it was a good plan gone bad. Jesus really meant well, but it didn't turn out well. He was a failure. He was a victim. MacArthur goes on to say, Many reject him, meaning Jesus, but then there are the few. The thief on the cross, the centurion that said, Surely he was the Son of God. And Simon of Cyrene. And God plucks them by his grace out of the crowd for divine purposes. And so he has done in your life if you belong to him. That's what salvation is. We just get plucked out of the masses to be saved. And whatever little part of kingdom history he's using you to write, 
One day you will be able to look back with all those in glory and see. There is one thing I know that Simon of Cyrene never expected to do when he got to the Passover. He never expected to meet Jesus and he never expected to meet Jesus the way he met Jesus and play such an incredible role not only in the salvation of his family but also in the church that would send out Paul. It's amazing. So my question for you this morning is this, how about you? During this social isolation and some uncertainty, you can feel like a victim. And if God had provided no way for you to be forgiven for the sin we inherited from Adam, we could say that we were indeed victims. But God has provided a way of forgiveness for us. The very fact that you are listening this morning to this message is proof that God is granting you grace so that you can be reborn from victim to victor. God knows your name just like he knew Simon's. And he knows the deepest thoughts you may have. He hears the questions and the doubts that may be swirling around in your mind. And I believe he's calling you to repentance. Repent and receive, that is salvation. We just say no to who we are. We recognize that we have no hope. We recognize that God is who the Bible says he is and that Jesus is who the Bible says he is and the salvation comes through the Bible and what the Bible says. So my encouragement to you this morning is to repent, recognize those things, and in a moment of humility, just say, Lord, I receive you now. Come in and be Lord of my life. And that is salvation. And it's wonderful. It's wonderful. Let's pray. Lord, you are beautiful, you are faithful, and you are patient. We live in a nation where the gospel is freely heard, and that's a wonderful thing. The difficult thing with that is every time we hear the gospel, we are more accountable for having not received your word. And all of that is taken into consideration, Lord. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord for the glory of God, his Father. We thank you for that, Lord. We're unworthy without you. And we love you. In Jesus' holy and precious name we pray. Amen.